Oh, what time is it? Who woke me up? Hello, everyone. I am your host, Fast Big Dog. And today I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, a man who, if you watched even one Nordic World Cup race last year, needs no introduction, Ben Ogden. Big Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to getting the season started here in a few weeks. No better way to kick it off than a, than a conversation with the, with the famous Fast Big Dog. <laughs> well, that's funny that you say that, actually, because... Um, for those of you who missed uh, the first three podcasts, they were all part of a series. Um, just sort of by happenstance, the three uh, previously Nordic skiers, they all had roots in Nordic skiing. They all made it to the Mountain Bike World Cup uh, together last year. And so if you haven't listened, I would actually strongly recommend it. It's been frequently referred to as life-changing. As a matter of fact, I have a, I have a quote here from a listener who just uh, only gave his first name. Well, first name, last initial is Wolfgang P., I think is his name. And he said it was one of the best things he's, he, that he's ever heard. So thank you, uh, Wolfgang P., whoever you are out there. So um, the we've kind of stumbled into this theme or this idea of having themes for the podcast. So the first trio was um, Nordic skiers who made it to the Mountain Bike World Cup. And these guys were all you know, on the World Cup at the same time, racing together. So it's a great story. And uh, we kind of thought that the, a, a next appropriate next theme would be getting started. So we're sort of breaking it down a couple of different ways. Obviously, you're our first conversation, which we really appreciate. And we're going to talk to you about a whole bunch of topics, you know, transitioning from college skiing into the World Cup, um, getting started with the year. We want to talk to you about that. Um, and then we're going to have a few other guests kind of as a part of this series. I think uh, your boy Caldwell is going to um, give us some recommendations on skis. And another Vermont boy, Newell, is going to talk about training. So the, the concept that we're working on for this next series is exactly that, uh, getting started. So um, we've got a lot we want to talk to you about, everything from you know your love of Toyotas, coffee, uh, and then obviously the World Cup. So let's start. Let's just dive right in. Uh, give us a little. I'm sure everyone knows who you are, but give us a little background about yourself, and maybe finish with a fact about you that most people don't know and would surprise them. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. And uh, <laughs> so my name is Ben Ogden. I grew up in Southern Vermont in a little town called Langrove. Um, I've been skiing ever since I was you know, very young. Uh, it's a big part of the culture and in the particular small area where I grew up, uh, Bill Coke was uh, born and raised right near there. Um, the Caldwells are all local to that part of the world. So yeah, it's a, it's a big, big deal there. And, and just like everybody, I grew up ski racing and um, yeah, raced for the University of Vermont in college. Uh, I did four years there. And then I uh, now graduated in 2022 and now race pretty much full time for the U.S. national team uh, on the World Cup, uh, primarily. But, you know, there's also world champs and the occasional Olympics and whatnot thrown in there. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at right now. And a, uh, a fact that few people know about me. Uh, a good question, I guess. I would say that I'm the third, 
Well, I guess yeah, I'm, a, I'm the third generation of Ogden to live in the same town of 150 people in uh, southern Vermont. So it's this little tiny town called Landgrove. I mentioned that earlier. And uh, yeah, most people don't even know it exists, but there's been Ogdens there for nearly 100 years. All right. Right on. Well, so as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, the this whole this latest series is based on getting ready for the uh, upcoming season. So um, if I may, let's jump back to last season for a second. And let me set the scenes with, uh, I mean, you know me pretty well. And you know that I generally don't get too excited about something that doesn't directly involve me. But without (laughs) a doubt, one of my favorite moments of all last year, I think it was the sprint and tour de ski. And you and I talked about this right after it happened, actually. We were texting. You attacked Claybo in the semis with one of my favorite moves of the year. I mean, I was in Europe at the time as well. So I was watching on Eurosport and I think it was Patrick Winterton and Mike Dixon, the uh, announcers. And they're, those guys are great. They're real, like call it as I see it, guys. They were going crazy. I mean, it was great. And <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, interviewed by this very publication afterward, you said, and I'm going to quote you here, uh, they, meaning the group, were kind of slow in the beginning. And I was just like, all right, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to try. And I tried and I went as hard as I could, got to the top of the hill and looked back and I had a huge gap. It was just me and the king, meaning Claybo. And I was like, maybe this can work. So I love that quote. I love that move. So in the end, um, even though it was an absolutely epic move, you know, you did end up getting caught. So uh, what's your preparation been for this coming year so that next time that move sticks? (laughs) Yeah, Great question. Uh, certainly, you know, something at the forefront of my mind this summer and fall has been my sort of like final hundred speed, if you will. Um, so I, I found that in many races last year, that one, you know, included, I was just getting tracked down in the in the final sprint, you know, and, and obviously there was a lot more to that particular race than just the final sprint that led to me getting caught up. But you know, in general, I feel like, you know, I have, I have decent double pull technique. I have good speed, good strength. But then when I start to build a little lactic acid and get a little tired, I, I, it all kind of falls apart and I resort to, to just high tempo and, you know, I get backseat and I sort of don't use my strength to my advantage and, and stuff like that in, in your typical final hundred. Um, so that's been something I've been thinking about a lot, definitely, because I want to, you know, I know I have some strengths out on the course, uh, you know, climbing and, and whatnot and, and, and all that. But, you know, I really want to become a little bit more well-rounded. And, you know, if you really were to dive into it, the reason that I felt, you know, the need to to attack like that early was just because, you know, just race after race, I was getting burned in the final hundred because a lot of these sprints come down, you know, especially when Claymo's involved. It'll just be a waiting, 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 waiting game until the very end when there's a you know a frantic sprint, which Claybo knows he can win, and that's how he can get over the line using the least amount of energy. Which, you know, in his position, I probably wouldn't act any differently. But you know, if I'm trying to if I'm trying to race against that, you know, if he can beat me in the final hundred, that's that's true, and uh, and most of those guys probably can't, could. So in that particular race, I just was like, you know what, I gotta try something else, and I gotta uh, <laughs> I gotta leverage my strengths here. But you know. Kind of a kind of a race your strength, train your weaknesses situation. So this summer, my 
in my training, my, the focus has certainly been on, on that final hundred and the big, the big double pull, you know, uh, or V2, if it was a skate race type, type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, so again, I love everything about that. And that's why I wanted to lead with it because not only was it just, like I said, it was probably the boss move of the year. Um, but it's, it's a, really a perfect way to set the stage in terms of like evaluating your strengths and weaknesses. And so I think for anyone trying to figure out, all right, how can I be a better racer? It's good to look back at like exactly what you said, race your strengths and working your weaknesses. And, you know, I think um, in all honesty, probably finishing ninth last year in the overall is probably more impressive. I mean, it shows, you know, consistency, resiliency, you know, fast week in, week out and all that. But you know what? At the end of the day, this is about racing and what right. I, and like you and I talked about that time, that was a racer move. Like, you know what, this guy, maybe I'm, you know, at my limit or close to it, but he, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, athletes, a better sprinter than me. I know that I'm going to make a move here. Maybe I catch someone by surprise. Maybe there's a crash. Maybe everyone else right. is suffering more than me. And that's really the racing mentality. And that's, you know, like, like we talked about the time, that's, uh, that's what I love about the move. And just just the way you race in general, it's it's awesome to see. So let's um, like, like I said, I kind of wanted to set the stage with that, but sort of let's build on that and go back. You mentioned uh, growing up in uh, Coke's hometown, or at least in his area. Talk about um, kind of how you got started skiing and what your early years were like racing, like maybe up through high school or whatever. Yeah, for sure. So you know, yeah, Bill Coke. Uh is local to Putney, Putney, Vermont, and now him and his family live in Peru, Vermont. So, you know, the that his influence certainly has created a crazy culture for skiing in that part of the or part of Vermont. And then there's of course the Bill Coke League, you know, youth the youth ski league in Mensa and everything. So, you know, when I was when I was young, like what skiing was for me was just, you know, it was practice after school where we would you know play games and run around the field and then ski around the local areas and then the bill coke races uh, a couple times a year or whatever and of course the bill coke festival which was like the ultimate you know all the new england uh bill coke clubs would come together for one massive you know youth ski race ranging from i don't know second graders all the way up till eighth graders so it's uh it's a serious event. And that was like really what, you know, those things were really what like started me having a passion for, for racing and uh, skiing. You know, my dad was always really, really into it. Um, you know, he, he was the coach of the youth ski club and where locally, like where I grew up. Um, and he always brought a whole big crew to the Boat Festival and, yeah, it was it was sweet, and then you know, fast forward to like eighth, ninth grade. Um, there's also also right near where I grew up is uh, Stratton Mountain School, so that's like this you know prep school type thing for sort of ski racing specific. Um, so you know, I was lucky, uh, really lucky to be able to attend Stratton Mountain School and also attend as a day student. So. You know, a lot of kids live in the dorms at Stratton, um, but I, I was lucky that, you know, we lived right there, so I was able to just go be a day student or whatever, so I got to take, take advantage of that in high school, which was super sweet, and then, you know, freshman, sophomore year of high school, I really started to get a bit more 
serious and, you know, do some actual training, go to junior nationals and whatnot. But, you know, really like for, for a very long time through most of high school, like skiing was really, uh, you know, the something I just, you know, I don't know. It was something that I just couldn't, couldn't go without, you know, training aside. I like when I wasn't training, I was like building jumps for my Nori skis and rails and stuff in the backyard and, or skiing through the woods at Bill Coke's house, you know, or whatever it may be. Uh, it was really just like a, uh, I was pretty single minded in my obsession with, uh, with all forms of skiing, not really even just training, you know, and then in the future or in the more recent years, you know, like college and late high school, certainly I've like taken, been, you know, more serious about training and, and whatnot as, you know, I sort of realized the opportunities that can come along with, uh, with racing and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, when I was young, it was, I was really just, it was all about the people and all about the, uh, all about the jumps and the rails and the games and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was a good time. At what age did you think, Hey, I might, I might be pretty good at this. <laughs> uh, I'd say the, the first year I ever went to junior worlds in, uh, when I was, I was in high must've been a senior or, or junior in high school. And like, you know, went to went to nationals in Soldier Hollow and qualified. You know, as a U eighteen, uh, and then went over to Gome, Switzerland for Junior Worlds. And actually, I can't remember what my best race was there, but I think it was something in the like low twenties, maybe. And that was I remember that race. I was like, okay, wow, this actually this could be like this could be for real, you know. And and uh, I really started to feel like. Yeah, I may, I may have a future doing this after that race. And, uh, yeah, and then, of course, later that week, we went on to get a medal in the relay, which was, again, like, holy crap. You know, that was a that was a team effort. So I think that was when I sort of realized, like, this team and this group of, you know, guys who just randomly happened to be my exact age. Like, we we got some chemistry. We have some potential here. So, yeah, that was kind of that was kind of when it all when I started to think that way for the first time, um, I mean, certainly there was junior national races and stuff before that, but you know, a lot of that, I think for me, it just felt so, you know, it felt so natural. Like it was just, it was like the Bill Coke festival, but a little bit bigger, you know, Mm -hmm. people from Alaska, you know, it wasn't when you go and do that, like world thing for the first time, that's when you really start to think, okay, like this, you know, that, that this is something that you can, I don't know, be legit at, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what advice do you have for young racers right now, really anywhere in the country, not just necessarily New England? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, I mean, you know, depending on the age, I would say if you're, you know, if you're in high school and and listening to this, I would say just take advantage of all opportunities, any and all opportunities that come your way, you know, because it's really like the... the the opportunities in ski racing are, are limitless and at, at every level, you know, there's, there's fantastic people to be met and there's really cool places to go and fun things to do. If you just, you know, if you just take advantage of, of whatever comes, you know, so I don't know if you get the opportunity to, you know, go to a race that's, you know, outside your normal worldview, then like take it and go there and race your heart out. And if you get the opportunity to, get on a college team, you know, 
it, but it's across the country. Just go for it. You know, if, if, if it feels right, then it's going to be right. And like, there's, there's just, you just never know what, like, what fantastic opportunity will, you know, manifest itself if you just say yes to things. So that's, that's what I've always done. And it's taken me a long way. So that would be my recommendation. You know, uh, Ben, it, it's really funny because that's what I've done as well. And it's taken me a long way too. Not necessarily yeah. skiing, some skiing, but, you know, rowing and other things. So it's probably some of the best advice that I ever heard regarding skiing or sports, or really for that matter, uh, just life. So hopefully yeah. uh, lots of people are listening and they're going to take that to heart because that certainly is great advice. Um, so it's interesting. You, uh, you just mentioned college. So let's talk about that next. So uh, sure. you then went to school at UVM. And how was that experience? Oh man, yeah. I I had an incredible time at UVM. I mean, really, all uh, all four years, and even into into the fifth year. Um, I you know when I came there, there was a big big group of older guys, as you know, um, who were just like fantastic leaders, and you know they really that group of guys i think really has influenced you know me now more than more than many or more than most people i've come across just because you know when you're coming out of high school you know you've shown a little bit of talent or whatever but you're still young and and you go on this under this college team and it's you know you're really like primed up to be like molded you know if that makes sense like you're kind of looking for your direction and and you know, Carl Schultz and Finn and Bill and Henry and Yuri and, you know, Ian and, and all those boys really like they were that for me. And, and uh, they taught me how to, you know, how to work hard and how to, you know, <laughs> how to, you know, hang out, hang out hard, too. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, boy, we had a good time my, my first couple of years and, and we were forced to be reckoned with, I think, on the on the circuit and, and it was really a really fun feeling and and of course there was my classmates as well and but then you know eventually they uh they graduated all and then it was sort of okay now all of a sudden i'm one of the older people on the team you know or, or my me and my classmates are sort of the old people and there's and there's younger kids coming in and it's like all right now but it was so effortless for me to sort of slide into that to that older group person role leader role or whatever you might call it just because you know i had such fantastic role models when i was when i was a freshman so you know we had a good time and and yeah we went hard during intervals and we went hard during ods and you know we uh we challenged each other and, and we were frustrated when the races went bad and we were stoked when the races went good but you know i i really think that yeah that that group of guys and then of course the group of guys that, that were a little younger than me, you know, in my last couple of years on the team together, we really had, you know, a fantastic four years of training and racing and, and, and everything in between, you know, really those will be the years that I'll, that I'll always reminisce about, you know, when, when my ski career is over and out, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys were definitely a force to be reckoned with. I mean, I remember I was at the Dartmouth carnival, I believe a few years back <laughs> and uh, you and your teammates swept the podium, um, and you know the whole scene was actually was was great. And it's interesting because I've often heard that the um, East Coast uh, Carnival experience is one like no other. Would Would you agree with that? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've never raced a, a West Coast Carnival, but I have raced, you know, plenty of, uh, you know, other race circuits and, and none of them compare to your average Eastern Carnival. I mean, it, it's just really, it's a, it's a spectacular event, uh, each and every one of them somehow. And, uh, yeah, I remember that. It's funny. I was just thinking about, you know, my sophomore and freshman year on the team and, and how that group of guys was. And of course, the image that pops into my head is the one in that relay, which you were there for in yep. Dartmouth, Dartmouth Carnival, where UVM put it up, put up three teams and went number was one, two, and three. So every single member of the team got to go up on the podium. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember that. Which is pretty sweet. It, it was awesome. But, are experiences like that one of the reasons why you were so passionate about coming back from World Cups in order to race, uh, you know, EISA and uh, finish up some of the college races? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, w- w- like, without a doubt, you know, I. Yeah, if it hadn't been for experiences like that, I think I would have I would have felt, you know, compelled to stay in Europe or whatever, but, you know, with, with my relationship with, you know, the coaches at UVM and, and my teammates, you know, it was, it was just never a question. And, and unfortunately, like, you know, in my fifth year, I ran into some issues where like I couldn't travel back and forth due to some visa problems, but, you know, it really broke my heart to not be able to come home for NCAAs last year. But, you know, I was really proud that I made it home post tour for those two Carnival weekends uh, in in late January last year. So, you know, it, it was just like, it, yeah, it, it, it's stuff like that, that that like, you know, you, you make it back there because like the World Cup is serious and it's go 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 and it's a ton of fun. But there's something just like insanely special about about those college races and uh, you know and being there for your teammates and and, and everything else. So, yeah, absolutely it influences my decision or did influence my decision to come back. Well, you know, as you know, uh, I'm good friends with a lot of your teammates. And at the time and many uh, times subsequently, um, that has come up, you know, sort of in passing or, you know, when we're busting your balls about you not coming out here for the wake surfing competition, whatever. And (laughs) I I know that really meant a lot to those guys that you were willing to turn down World Cup starts and, you know, the whole circus that is, you know, international air travel making it back and all that, you know, to be with right. them. That really, uh, I know uh, firsthand that that really meant a lot to all those guys. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned um, taking a fifth year too. We're speaking of like the whole kind of push-pull between college, the college team, World Cup opportunities. Um, after you decided to take a, a fifth year, were there any moments that you questioned that decision a little bit? Yeah, fifth year is good. A good, uh, you know, a good wrap up to this college conversation because, you know, I will say that I speak nothing but positive about my entire time in college, fifth year included. But, you know, I think that there does, just like everything in life, there comes a time when you just can't, you just can't do everything, you know. And and I was, I consider myself very lucky for for a couple of years in college to be able to get some exposure on the world cup, get, you know, get to the Olympics, get to this, that, and the other thing. Um, but still make it home for college carnivals, you know, make it home for NCAAs and be rested and happy and stoked. Um, you know, and all the while, you know, juggling the school thing too, you know, which was, which was an added challenge, you know, and, and 
thankfully, you know, the program I was in at UVM had a long history of successful and very, very smart, capable minorities. So, you know, when I came to the professors and said, hey, I'm on the minority team and I want to, you know, miss three months of school, they were generally like, you know, good on you. Like, we'd be happy to help you help you uh, make it happen, which is fantastic. But like I said before, you can't, you know, you just can't do everything all the time forever. And in my fifth year, I had, a, you know, I just sort of, it was almost like, you know, you don't know your limit until you crossed it, right? And I, in my fifth year, I crossed it, right? Like mm-hmm. the school, I went, I embarked on a master's program and the school was just, you know, I was getting a lot of pushback for, for you know, tr- trying to miss all this school and taking exams from Europe and whatnot because, you know, the professors will say, hey, you know, we understand that you're racing, but you're now at a level in school where, you know, this should be your sole purpose. And if it's not your sole purpose, then come back when it is, you know. And on some level, I don't, I, I do not, you know, and that wasn't universal, but, you know, that was sort of the general vibe from, from, some of my professors and, and I don't, don't blame them for that at all because I think that's true. You know, like you can't, you can't, you can't go and, you know, pursue school at the highest level and then also say, Oh, I don't ever want to be there, you know? Right. So you, you have to be told it's, it's not going to happen every once in a while. So anyhow, had some, had some hard times there. And then of course, again, you know, I was, I was kind of on the world cup all fall, you know, had some, had some really, you know, good success. We're starting to get some traction. Came home for those EISA races. Had a blast. But, you know, I said to myself, after those were done, all right, let's get back on the World Cup and get back to, you know, to balling. So I went over there a couple of weeks earlier than I had originally planned. And then, you know, I was there for World Champs and World Champs pre-camp and everything. And then all of a sudden, you know, I got I got uh, contacted, you know, and, and told I'd been in Europe for too long with no visa. Right. So I've been over the 90 days in the Schengen region or whatever with no with no visa. So if I crossed back into the U.S., you know, I wouldn't be able to go back, you know, so to Europe. So then it's just like, ah, you know, now, again, just like with the school thing, it's like someone basically told me, hey, dude, you can't do this forever. And now is when it's going to have to stop, you know, and Mm -hmm. and it was brutal because like I so badly wanted to go by Friends of Blaze and Lake Placid and everything. But you know, I had to make I had to make a call, and I, had to, I decided to stay over for the rest of the season, and you know, try and finish things out in the World Cup, do the best that I could, you know, try and secure that green bib, and uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, tough tough situation, but you know, it doesn't. It, it my relationship with my teammates and my coaches here at UVM, like it was no, it was no, you know, I think they all understood and. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, you know, I, I beat myself up over it plenty hard, but, you know, I'm proud of what I did with, with the extra time in the World Cup and, and that sort of thing. So, so anyhow, hope that kind of makes sense. Like, my, my point being, you know, you can do it for, you can do it and it's, and it's, you know, the sky is the absolute limit when it comes to what you can accomplish in, in school and in, in skiing. But, uh, yeah, I guess once you reach the sky, yeah, that's the limit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it you fly too close to the sun and, so that's a tricky right. balance. That's a tricky balance for sure. And that's why I, I wanted to hear your perspective on that, because, you know, I, I remember talking to you and you kind of explaining some of the challenges and, you know, and that's a tale as old as time. I mean, uh, there, I don't think a ski season passes that there's not somebody either 
biathlon Nordic combined or uh, XC who doesn't have yeah. some like change in schedule and airfare and just the, you know, circus that is uh, the world cup. And you have people sitting over there who all of a sudden find themselves with some, with some visa issues. So yeah, you're, yeah, you're, no, it's, you're in good it's company. Classic, but yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you know, again, it's, it, it is what it is at this point. And, and my fifth year at UVM was, was fantastic. I had a great training group in the fall, you know, and I, and I, you know, I've made a relationship with, you know, a couple of fantastic new freshmen. So it was not a complete wash by any stretch of the imagination, but it was just a little frustrating right at the end there, you know, because right. I, just, I just couldn't quite do it all. But, you know, that's okay. Right. Well, that's, so part of, that's part of life. If I could, one more question about college skiing, just because it's such yeah. a good, it's, it's such a good story. It's a, it's a great yeah. story, too. And of course, you know, we can't talk about UVM without talking about, you know, Ghostface Skier, Finn O'Connell. And the <laughs> thing, well, the thing that I love about this story, I mean, obviously he's a great guy and all that, but just his traje- trajectory is the stuff of legends. Because as you know, I helped coach him a little bit in high school. And I mean, he wasn't even on the top five in the high school team. And, you know, he said that uh, no college coaches would, basically even return his calls except for UVM. And then he goes on to, you know, have a great career at UVM. And then for everyone out there who doesn't know, he then graduated, went on to ski for Newell's pro team, uh, the BSF pro team, and then ended up winning or leading the super tour, getting a world cup start at the tour to ski. So it's such a great story because I know so many younger skiers that think if they haven't gone to JNs, you know, by the time they're 16, they have no future. And here Ghost goes on uh, to make it to the World Cup, you know, and it did great. You know, he was, I think, first or second American a couple of days in a row there. You know, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. yeah, did absolutely great. And your perspective on this, I think, is a very interesting one because you really had a front row seat, everything from college to uh, his journey in the U.S. ski team and then, you know, racing with him at the Tour de Ski. So. What what was your biggest takeaway from his whole uh, you know process? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, certainly, you know, his his trajectory is fantastic, and uh, and it was a real pleasure to be along along for part of the ride in college. But you know, if if, if I'm being honest with you, when it comes to Finn, like, it, I think it goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning, where you know, he's a, he is. He's very calculated in his decisions, but he also just he just says yes to to the opportunities that come his way, and he makes the most of them. And he always has. And I think that like a lot of you know his success and his big jumps through skiing have been because of that. You know, like right, you say okay, you know, he wasn't getting a lot of nods from from college coaches, and you know, whatever, wasn't the very best in high school. And maybe that would have been a reason to go and do something else. But no, like UVM gave him the nod and he said, okay, I'm going to go to UVM. I think, I don't know, but I, I kind of remember him saying that he came to UVM having never visited. And I, that, that could be wrong, but I seem to recall that, you know? So he just said yes to that opportunity and then just made the most of it, you know? And then college came, came and went and he got the opportunity to go race with, with Newell. And he just, you know, he just said yes and just made the most of it for a couple of years. And uh, yeah. Got the opportunity to come to the World Cup, come to, you know, the Tour de Ski, which, like, first of all, the Tour de Ski is no place for a World Cup debut, you know? <laughs> right? The Tour de Ski is fucking rugged. Right? You know? <laughs> oh, my God. 
I mean, Jesus. Yeah, it's, right. Uh, it's brutal. And uh, but no, like Finn just said yes, and, and he just went over there, and you know, he didn't listen to the people who said, "Oh, you should have been out seed for longer." Oh, you should have this, that, and everything. He just was like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna show up and race hard." And he put down some great results, and he can play the tortoise ski start to finish every single race, and that's that's serious business. So. You know, I, I always will, will commend him for, for that attitude. And, and really, you know, it's something I, it's, it's an attitude. I, it's, it, I aspire to be like him in many ways. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun you bring him up because, of course, when I talk about college, my experience in college, my experience post-college, even pre-college, you know, he, he was a big part of it the whole way. So, Well, I, I love the, <laughs> I, and I love the way you brought that full circle and use him as an example of your earlier point about, uh, not being afraid to say yes to opportunities, even though they may, right. may seem daunting or scary or unfamiliar or right. people around mm-hmm. you might be telling a lot of people, you know, knowledgeable college coaches are like, oh, you know, you suck. And he just didn't yeah. listen to them. So, you know, I, I love the perseverance, but I uh, really love the way you tie it all together with your example, of, you know, as an example of your earlier point. Um, So let's transition a little bit into kind of the World Cup with uh, sort of a nice sort of segue question in between. I I think it'd be really interesting for everyone out there, in particular college skiers or younger skiers, to hear your insight on your mental preparation for, you know, uh, one of the college races versus a World Cup. I know, obviously, the desired outcome is the same in both of those instances, right. obviously winning, but the circumstances are also quite different. So how do you manage this? Yeah, I mean, the mental preparation thing for me is it's something that sometimes I am very, you know, I'm very calculated with. And other times it's just sort of, you know, I just, it just sort of is what it is. Um, And it's interesting to, you know, to compare like a college race versus a World Cup because, you know, um, on the World Cup, I tend to try uh, i try to bring like a you know a calculated mental approach to a race so you know for instance um i tried to you know have in the warm-up find a few places on the course where i can you know focus on and i can focus my energy and i can earn my uh, you know my mental energy on like you know the top of this hill because i know there's going to be a big recovery or you know the the lap zone or wherever it might be that i can just i can sort of just like fixate on that and then every time it comes, if it's a multiple lap race or whatever, you know, you sort of, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a good way for me to, to um, mentally prepare for a race and, and, you know, think about things other than, you know, the discomfort or how you're doing or, or any of that sort of stuff. So that's what I do on the World Cup. And it's, and it's kind of a, you know, it's a conscious thing. And then, you know, you take a college race. College race, you know, I'm, I may not, I may not consciously do that where I'm like going out in the world and looking for a place, but it's funny because I, I always find one, you know, or, mm-hmm. or a few, right. A few places where I want to focus. I want to say, Oh, I want to beat you up this hill. Oh, I want to, you know, when I push over this hill, like that's going to be nice. Cause it's going to be a big recovery. You know, like the, the places that you think about on each lap and they sort of get you through the whole race, but it always happens on like, uh, naturally in, a, in your, in a lower you know, a lower pressure race environment, which I would say is a, was a college race. You know, your average college race, certainly I had the same goals and I had the same, you know, 
yeah, ambition. I raced the same way, but it was, you know, definitely just, there was just a different vibe, you know, and, and you come to it, you come to that with a different, you know, a different set of, yeah, mental, mental things. So anyway, but it always happens naturally at, at the races that you don't do it on purpose. So, you know, I'd always find that hill that I was going to focus on or that, you know, that downhill or whatever. And so I'll let that be the fixation of the race because, you know, I think that it's pretty well ingrained. And like, I started doing that, that strategy in college, you know, when I had a few months of just sort of not feeling like myself out there, kind of being a little negative or whatever, a little, a little bit, not just didn't, didn't feel right. Didn't feel like I was racing right. So I just, you know, Patrick Weaver came up with this idea. It was just like, yeah, okay, find three places on the course and set yourself a, a goal for those, for those places, you know, V2 to sale, et cetera. Um, that's what I started doing it and it worked great. And then, you know, I've done it in whatever couple, yeah, however many world cups I've done pretty much every single one. And now when I go back to the college racing, even though it's not necessarily like, you know, a, a, it's not necessary. It's not, it's, that's not really where my, it's yeah. But I, I still find myself doing it. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And sort of along those lines, did you have to recalibrate your confidence and your perception of your abilities coming from the college circuit where, you know, you were obviously the man to a circuit like the World Cup where it's a lot harder to be the man? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I could go on and on about this, but certainly, you know, the mental aspect of race thing on the World Cup is extremely important and also very, very challenging. You know, it's really hard to, to, you know, pull up to the start line of the world cup and, you know, feel as though you belong, feel as though you're a competitor, you know, and just not count yourself out before the race even starts, you know, cause you look around and it's, you know, it's Claybo, it's Sean Avant, it's you, it's, you know, Paul Goldberg, all these guys, they're, they're, they're men, right. And they, they're adults and they, they, they make money, they have kids, they have, you know, cars, they're composed, blah, 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 whatever it is, right? And that's not, you know, when you're when you're fresh out of college on the World Cup, that's not you, you know? And, and it's really hard to not sort of like, to not count yourself out because of that. Um, and I always bring up this example. Um, during... In 2022, before the Olympics, you know, I was was my one of my first like longer chunks in the World Cup. That was like a two monther, and you know, a lot of a lot of racing, a lot of sprinting, and you know, I had goals, you know, but I, and I was accomplishing the goals, but you know, I was still I was qualifying well, getting out in the quarterfinals. It was just like it was like banging my head against the wall. It was like every single race, qualifying you know, top 15 or even better, you know, top 10. And then just out in the quarterfinals, no matter what. And it was just excruciating. So I was really analyzing my, you know, my quarterfinal experience. And, you know, I came to the conclusion that, you know, I was, I was saying to myself, or not saying to myself, I was subconsciously allowing myself to be satisfied after the qualifier. You know, like my goal for that season was to, you know, be consistent, the, in the top 30 in the sprints, right? That's what you get to the Olympics. That's what gets you on the ski team, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? But so, you know, you go out in the qualifier, you get in the top 30, and then there's a little teeny part of you inside your head that says, okay, 
you know, if this doesn't work, if this qual if this quarterfinal goes poorly and I get sixth or whatever, like it's still okay. I don't have to be bummed about today because I qualified well, you know, and I got the top three. And it was just like it was it was so frustrating. So after that season, I came to the sports psychologist and you know, and we were talking about that and you know, made some made some plans and, you know, came up with some ideas for how to sort of how to, you know, be satisfied and happy with what you did in the qualifier or whatever, and then come to the come to the uh, quarterfinal and like expect, you know, not expect, but like you know, have new goals, right? Goals in, in that event. So I don't know; it's, it's hard to explain, but like that was a big, a big thing that I had to wrap my head around because you know, again, when you come to the qual or to the quarterfinal with that. You know, you give yourself a little out. You say, oh, I can still be happy about today. Oh, well, these guys, they're, they're so much better. They're so much stronger than me. Better technique. You know, they've raced so many more World Cups than me. Like, you will get you will get six no matter what. Because <laughs> if you give yourself an inch, yep. you give yourself an inch on the World Cup, it just explodes into, you know, into a mile, you know? And that's that's the thing you just can't be doing. So it's, it's an ongoing challenge. And, you know, I'd say that last year I, I felt better with regards to it, you know, the few races that I felt I really like skied to my abilities in the qualifier and the heats. Um, I felt as though I was just sort of in this, in this state where I was never satisfied and never, you know, never planning, right. Never planning for what's going to happen after the race, whether I'm going to be happy, sad, bummed, you know, and I was just looking, I was just taking every moment at face value, you know, it was almost like people will talk about like flow state or whatever. It's kind of like that, you know, mm-hmm. where, yeah, you're just, you're not thinking about how X, Y, and Z outcome is going to affect everything. You're just doing the very best that you can at every moment. And, and you know, my goal is to, that was maybe like five races last year, you know, and my goal is to make that, you know, 10 races this year or whatever. It, it, so that's kind of the, that's, uh, a little bit of a roundabout way of answering your question, but it's, it is a challenge, but it's something that I think all of us Americans, especially American men work on constantly. Mm-hmm. No, that that's a perfect way of answering the question. We talk about it all the time. You know, don't be happy to just be there. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. What races were you particularly proud of last year? You said you had three or four where you felt like you qualified well, you raced well. I'm curious from your perspective, where do you think you really put it all? It sounds like it happened a bunch of times, which is great. Which ones do you think you did a good job putting it all together? Yeah, I mean, so the ones the ones that I really think of are Vitasolin uh, and Lillehammer early season. Um, and then that race we were talking about earlier in the Tour de Ski, that sprint um, uh, in Val, Val de Fiem. And then the, also... You know, it was yeah. I'd, I'd say Drummond would also be in there. There's there was also quite a few distance races that were that way, but that's kind of a you know a different mental challenge in, in my opinion when we're talking about purely sprinting and the challenge of of that qualifier versus heats thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say those sprints are the ones that come to mind. Certainly, Bidasol and Lillehammer. Those ones were early season, and you know, I was I was still you know I, I didn't have like this like that like mo- that momentum. You know, I, I was sort of still getting gone. And those races, I felt like I just went out and executed. And, and I was happy with how it went. You know, I, I was really quite close to making the final in both both races. And, and obviously, you know, 
I, I would rather be in the final and I, and I think I'm capable of it, but I think that like my strengths, I think that my ability at that time was really right around, you know, right around the final. And that, so that felt good, but I also crossed the finish line in the, in the semifinals in both those races. And I was a little frustrated, you know, because, because I wasn't satisfied, you know, and, and that was almost a good feeling, right? I had a great race. I ended up in the top 10 or whatever, but I still was like, Nope, I can be better. I can be better. And, and, and that's not, you know, that's not, that's not what I came here to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a good feeling where it's like, you know, when you, in previous experience where I qualify well or whatever, and then you get like destroyed in the quarterfinal, you know, you're almost not frustrated. You're a little frustrated, but you're almost not. It's because you've kind of given yourself that, that out. So anyhow, it's a, it's a whole thing, but mm-hmm. yeah, those well, races are able to stick out. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you mentioned some distance racing in there. Because you're certainly known, but you are a very, very good sprinter. Um, have coaches ever tried to typecast you as just a sprinter? What's your perspective on that balance moving forward? Right. Yeah. I mean, not not in general. I think you know the nice thing about being, you know, on the younger side and a newer addition to the to the World Cup group is that there's no real like pigeonholing that goes on you know unless it's inside your own head you know like it's not like matt is saying oh you know uh gus can't do a sprint workout with the boys because he's a distance skier and ben can't do us you know l3 workout with scott and gus because he's a sprinter that it's really not that way so you know certainly the starts situation you know shakes out to be a group of sprinters and a group of distance skiers and then some people who, who tend to do both, but you know, I, I really haven't been, no one's ever tried to tell me I was one way or another. Mm. Thankfully. I, I started to believe myself that I was a bit of a, a sprinter only, but you know, only for a few short weeks and then, you know, get some momentum going the distance races and it's, and it's just as fun, if not more fun. And uh, yeah. So does this mean that we can look forward to you taking a run at, uh, Claybo in the sprint and the 50k in Milan. Oh, definitely, definitely. It'll be it'll be a different uh, it'll be a different you know strategy, but it'll be the same you know same deep down. <laughs> well, and you know, in all honesty, that's one of the things that's so awesome about skiing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of sports that have you know sprint events and distance events. There aren't many sports when the best people in the world at the sprint events are also racing the distance events, you know, that just doesn't happen very often. So for sure. Yeah. um, One of the things that I see people doing sometimes is looking at really successful athletes and really not just athletes, you know, musicians, movie stars, corporate Titans. And they think, wow, you know, that's a charmed life. And, you know, without a doubt, they're, a lot of great things about being in those positions are certainly lucrative and variety of other things. But what I think a lot of times people don't see or they don't understand is that the people in those roles are exactly that they're people. And, you know, well, they may be able to ski fast, run fast, sing well, own companies or whatever. Hardship hits them just like it hits everyone else. And you had a very, very difficult summer with the passing of your father. And every time, I spoke with you. I was incredibly impressed at how you were handling it. What has helped you get through this difficult time? And 
what advice do you have for everyone out there going through tough times uh, in their own lives, whatever it might be? Yeah, cer- certainly. Uh, another great question. And uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. You know, this, this summer has been uniquely challenging for me and, and uh, it will continue to be so, but you know, I think, yeah, definitely this summer. And, and yeah, I think in general, I've, I've been able to handle it pretty well. You know, it hasn't been without challenge and, and, you know, obviously just sadness and, and, and all that. But I would say that, you know, a, a huge part of, a huge part of what has, you know, helped me and my family and, and, you know, get through this time is just like the incredible, the absolutely incredible community that, you know, was built around my father and, you know, and all of us. And, it's just been like so incredibly humbling and, and special to hear from so many different people. And, you know, it's, you, you would be remiss if you were to talk about this experience and not bring up the power of, you know, the cross country skiing community, because that's who they are in, in many, not exclusively, you know, but in a huge majority, they're cross country skiers and they're, you know, of, of every level. They're my teammates, they're my old teammates, they're my dad's old teammates, their kids, you know, it, it, friends he made when he was racing, you know, it, it's just, like, it's just unbelievable. The people that are involved in this sport are just absolutely fantastic. And it, you know, it's thanks to them that, you know, I felt supported and, and, you know, I never felt as though I was, I was losing track of myself or, or my family, my family, or my father's, you know, uh, heritage or whatever you want to say, because you know the the people of Cross Country Skiing just like reached out so heavily, and, and I don't know, it's just such a special feeling. And you know, you you ask about advice to other people who are who are going through hard times like that, and you know, I would just say like lean on your lean on your people, and you know, people people will reach out and say, hey, like I'm here. If, you want to talk and just go, you know, go talk with them and, and take them up on that. Because, you know, for me, it was, yeah, it was, there was tons of people who reached out and said, I'm here. If you want to talk. I'm here. If you want to talk. And it would have been so easy to just, you know, to just not, you know, to just say, Oh, thanks. You know, good to hear from you. And then let it go, you know, but for me, like the power is the, 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 the healing power has really been taking people up on that, you know, when people come up to you and say, I'm here for you, if you ever want to talk, just strike up a conversation with them. Hear what their relationship was with my dad, you know, hear what their relationship is with me, with my family, with crossing your team, with whatever. And it just, it's just like so incredibly powerful. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's something I'll continue to do forever. You know, it's, it's, it's just like people are there for you and they're, and they're so universally, so universally just helpful and nice and uh, caring. I, I don't know. That's a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of a, of a mumbo jumbo, but certainly that's been what's helped me get through this and, and will continue to, you know, because then all of a sudden you, you take someone up on an offer like that and, and now you have a new friend, you know, or, or an old friend that's, that's now back in your worldview or whatever it is, you know, and, and it's just, it, it really is, it, it's the way to do it, I, I think. 
I, I, there's no way to do it, but it, it helps. So anyhow, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's very that's very well put, Ben. I mean, it really is an extraordinary community. It's it's a pleasure to be a part of it, and so I think that the the way you handled it again is just so commendable. And I'm sure it's it's hearing those words is very helpful for other people because. Like I said, I think sometimes people think, oh, just because everything is going great in one area, they don't realize that you know people can be struggling with a whole whole wide variety of issues. So I'm sure that's I'm sure, sure that's really really helpful. So another one yeah. of the things that you seem to do particularly well is that you have a plethora of interest outside of skiing. You and I talk all the time about uh, you know forerunners and Toyotas, and uh, in fact, I I think I saw on your feed that you just started. Uh, a posting about a brand new build that you're doing is that right yeah yeah okay yep well, got... well we, we can talk about that in a second because i want to i want to ask the question in a more broad sense then we'll drill down a little bit um All right. because nordic skiing as you well know is a you know it's obviously very very difficult very demanding and it's a sport renowned for oh how can i put this laser focused nerds sitting in altitude tents in between sessions, you know, with their legs elevated in an ice bath, watching World Cup videos. And you're one of the top guys in the world. And yet you seem to also excel in so many other diverse activities. Uh, do you think these other outside interests uh, help or hurt your skiing? <laughs> it's a great question. And, uh, you know, something I ask myself all the time. Uh, because it is it's very true that, you know, the best in the world or historically the best in the world, they are, yeah, like you, like you say, they, they train, they eat, they play video games or sit there and look at their computer and then they go out and train and they eat and then they go to sleep, you know? And, and that's, that's great because for most of the people who do that, I think they love it. Um, but for me, it's, it's, that's just not me. I, I hate video games. I really just can't get into them, as try as I might. Um, and I don't know, you know, for me, it's, I just feel, I always have felt like the best version of myself when I'm, you know, constantly busy and constantly trying to trying to learn new things. And, you know, that was part of the reason why I really engaged so much with, with sort of the college thing. But also, you know, for all my, you know, every single one of my years training, except for this past year i've worked in the summers i've worked i worked on a farm for a long time um and then i worked for a general contractor in southern vermont for a long time and you know this past summer was my very first year not doing that because you know i, I said to myself last year well you know i just <laughs> you know i would finish intervals in the morning you know eat a, eat the lunch i packed for myself put my car hearts on and go stand in the beating down sun, you know, welding or doing whatever for four hours. And then I got training again. And then, you know, I get home and I would just be like, Oh my God, I am worked. Right. You know? And at some point, like that's just bad training, you know? <laughs> so anyway, I, I sort of vowed to myself. I wasn't going to do that this summer as, as much as I wanted to. But of course I, I wasn't to be helped. Um, I was not to be helped. And I went out, and bought a 1973 Land Rover Series 3 out of some guy in Colchester's field where it had been sitting for like 12 years. And uh, I've embarked on a absolutely 
massive restoration of that. Uh, <laughs> so now it's like I work a summer job, except for I don't get paid. All I do is spend money. <laughs> yeah, but those, those are great trucks. That, that's time well spent. And it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in a previous podcast, I don't know if you know Evan Arthur. He skied in high school. He ran cross country in college at Colby, but he trained with a bunch of the skiers. And he and I were talking about that balance between, um, he was one of the guys that uh, raced on the World Cup, the mountain bike World Cup, you know, the yeah. Nordic skiers. And uh, we were talking about, the, you know, balancing training and working. And obviously, you know, there's the economic, substantial economic advantages of being able to, oh, I don't know, like buy food, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, he, yeah, he was also talking about the importance of having something to focus on other than racing. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot to that. And I think it's good because I know, well, Ghostface Gear is another one who used to tell me, he's like, I can't come home from training and just sit there. You know, so I think no, it's sure. really good for young skiers to hear. Yeah, it's important that you recover and you recognize when you maybe got a little too close to that line. But at the same yeah. time, having, you know, academic pursuits, uh, intellectual pursuits, or if you can, you know, find a job that, you know, especially in, in the days of, you know, in these days of remote work where you can um, make some money and not be <laughs> welding on your feet out in the hot sun, that doesn't sound optimal, you know? No, not optimal. Well, so speaking of this is going to this one's going to sting a bit. I'm going to warn you right now. You can only keep one working on the truck or coffee. Which one are you keeping? I told you it was going to sting. What? Uh, For the rest of my life. Uh, Sure. I probably have to let go. I probably have to let I probably have to let the coffee go. Really? Although, I don't know. The thing is, here's the thing. Here's the thing is that the coffee is, you know, 100%, you know, a positive at all times, right? Right. Working on the cars is sometimes like so awesome and rewarding and other times just like so incomprehensibly frustrating and horrible, mm-hmm. you know? So, so I don't know. It's, it's kind of a tricky one, but I think I'll probably take, I think I'll probably get rid of coffee, although I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be happy about it. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. You're you're getting rid of I thought you were keeping coffee. No, I'm getting rid of it. I'm getting rid of it. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, yeah, I think I'm getting rid of it. I, I do like working on the cars. All right. So um, we were talking uh, earlier. You were mentioning, you know, the Norwegian guys show up and they've got, you know, cars and kids and, you know, they're full grown men in the, in the, you know, in the throes of their job. And one of my uh, Norwegian skier friends was telling me that more and more young Norwegians want to play soccer and do other team sports as opposed to skiing. Have you seen that here in the U.S. as well? And if so, how, what do we do to continue to attract good athletes to skiing? Yeah, uh, I, I have heard that about Norway, but I do. I think I don't know. I mean, it's, it could be just the micro, you know world that i live in but i've seen that like it seems like all the local youth ski clubs are up in numbers around here and uh yeah are, are doing doing very well and the kids are fired up but i don't know it's hard to say and of course you know being up in numbers from having like six kids is uh nothing to write home about so you know how do we attract more kids to, to you know cross your ski and endurance sports i mean it's a great question but i think you gotta find 
I mean, you got to find the, the coaches and the role models who, who make it fun and, and, you know, teach the, I don't know, teach the like benefits of it along with, yeah. Like for me, when you're talking about team sports, it's just, man, like team sports were always so frustrating because if you were, if you weren't good enough, you didn't get to do it. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I went play the cross in my freshman year in high school and all through middle school and in middle school, it was super fun because I was like the only one who was reasonably fast and I got to play a lot. Then high school being horrible with the stick skills, man, I was on the bench all the time. And it was just, I was just like, why would I do this? This is not fun. You know, mm -hmm. and where thinking about it is, is that, I don't know. And obviously not everybody can win or podium or be in the top 10 or whatever of your average endurance event, but everybody gets to go out there and do it. And if you find the coaches and find the role models who will teach kids to like love the process and love the feeling of just doing it and accomplishing something hard, then I think you're going to get people to start skiing and start running and, and, and all that because, you know, there is just something so special about just, just getting out there and doing something that you thought that you didn't want to do or that you thought was hard or, you know, whatever. And obviously skiing is, is, you know, a truly enjoy, enjoyable pursuit. But, you know, I'm thinking about if, if there's a kid who says, Oh, I don't want to ski because it's hard or I don't want to run because it's hard and, and makes me breathe and whatnot. But I don't know. There's something about like, yeah, the, the, the accomplishing aspect of it, even if you didn't win or, or get on the podium or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. the, something as we all know, so rewarding about just getting out there and doing it. And I think that if you figure out how to teach kids that, then I think you can, they'll start to gravitate towards the endurance sports more. Okay. That being said, it also never hurts to, you know, get some games going during soccer or during ski practice, you know, get some, hit some jumps, do some fast downhills, get people fired up that way, you know, cause that's, that always works. <laughs> sure. Sure. You got to keep it fun. Well, sort of along the same lines, only on maybe a more global scale and not necessarily uh, talking about like, you know, very, very young skiers, but certainly younger skiers. Do you think fish should make any changes to World Cup races to attract more young viewers? You know, there's been talk about adding a few more tech features here and there. And, you know, I know uh, traditionalists like Caldwell are probably calling up uh, the Vermont Mafia on a hit of my life right now to suggest that the uh, the the 30k classic individual starts not the most compelling television in the entire world, but no. I know for a lot of younger viewers they struggle with that. So how do you sort of balance the the sort of the beauty and the history that goes back you know pretty long time with um, Nordic skiing versus you know this push towards making things more exciting, maybe making it more viewer friendly, maybe it making more techy. Where do you think that balance lies? Oh, I think it's a great question, and and I do I do agree that there are a lot of people out there, a lot of diehard fans who would who would be you know not like to hear it. But I a hundred percent agree with you know I think I think that like the, the the classic events should be you know they should be just that they should be the classic events and they should be something that that is brought that come to once or twice a season, right? Like the thir yeah the thirty k's and and the individual races and stuff like that. I think the World Cup needs way more mass starts. I think the World Cup needs way more point to point races, more you know flatter, more really you know 
I don't know, just more variety, right? Like, and they're starting to do it. They're starting to do it. This this equal distance thing has really shaken things up. I mean, the first season I raced in the World Cup, like I swear, I raced you know twenty five, fifteen k's individual, and it's just like this is this is not this is not a thrilling product on the TV, you know. And and there's just no two ways about it. So I think that changing things up is is going to be absolutely crucial to this to the future of the sport at the highest level, right? There's the, I don't think there's anything jeopardizing, like, you know, young kids getting out there on skis and going to junior nationals and whatnot. But if the World Cup is going to keep, you know, going, it's going to have to become a little bit more viewer-friendly and a little bit more exciting and thrilling and, and blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know. I, I agree with the people who will say that it, it needs some more variety. And, and I think it's going to happen, too. I mean, new venues, new new race formats and, and less individual start stuff. I think that's the key, but mm. you know, people will fight that. And, and of course their point is sound too. Like if you're a true fan of the sport, like we are, you know, and you followed it for however many years, there is something so absolutely fantastic about the 50 Ks, about the skiathlons, about the, you know, a good old fashioned 15 K individual, right? Like watching Kruger just dominate a 15 K skate individual. That's a, that's an absolute joy of any true Nordic ski fan. But mm. you know, if you're just like don't know anything about skiing, you tune on tune to this. You're like, what is, what is going on? He's totally alone. You know, this is absurd. <laughs> right, right. So I don't know. What, what what's your take on it? I'm curious. Well, I I love your suggestion there. I mean, a perfect analogy is biathlon. You know, biathlon very very user friendly to begin with, and then I got to give them a lot of credit. Um, Things that maybe aren't quite as viewer friendly, but have strong historical uh, significance would be like the individual start. I mean, you know, same type thing. Um, So they still have them, but they don't have them every week. So sprint pursuit, um, you know, kind of the money makers that most people tune in to see or that everyone likes seeing. Let's put it that way, because you're exactly right. Who doesn't like a good mass start? And I think that's one of the reasons why sprinting is so much fun to watch. Uh, So I love the idea of keeping in touch with the roots, um, but it doesn't have to necessarily be every weekend. And I I know that it's not anyway, but I I, 100%, I think you can sort of, you know, mix in, you know, uh, some of the stuff that you know are going to be well-received Without complete, it's not like yeah. it's not binary. That, that no. I think that's no, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And and the thing is too is that you know when you go to the this athlete meeting at the end of the season, they're already starting to say like, okay, we're going to reserve a certain chunk of the cross country season for like what they call the classics. You know, mm-hmm. so that's like the Oslo, the Falun, the uh, Lati, like you know, those are the classic ski venues with the history and Lillehammer and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, okay, you know, you already have a little three-week chunk that's like you're going to call the the classics or whatever. Okay, that's when you, re- you pull out the classic races, right? right? But then the rest of the season, when we're doing new places, we're hitting new venues, we're going to Minneapolis for the first time, we're going, you know, here, there, and the other where, that's when you go and you, you try some new race formats and you, and you you do pursuits and you do mass starts and and so what if people crash? And so what, you know, that's drama. That's what, that's what the viewers want. And on the World Cup, you know, it's 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 the entertainment factor is paramount, right? It, it, at junior nationals, 
the entertainment factor is not paramount. The effort factor is paramount, right? right. And the effort factor is the same in the master or distant or an individual start. But on the on the World Cup, it's all about entertainment. And I think we can agree that the entertainment is higher in some races than it is in others. Ben, sounds like just one more thing that you and I should be in charge of. <laughs> Seriously, oh my God, that is the list. Right. What's your favorite part about being on the World Cup? Oh man, good question. I mean, my really, my favorite part is is probably the people. So far, it's been the people that you meet. I mean, the the other skiers in other countries and and chatting with them before and after the races and whatnot. It's it's really fun to get to know all these, you know, all these different people. You, you feel so. It feels like such a small sport in the U.S. and you feel so like unique or whatever. Or in a small group of people growing up racing and skiing and, and knowing all this stuff about this small sport. But then you go around in the World Cup and like there's all these people from all these other parts of the world who grew up just the same way you grew up, you know? And really fun to get to know them. And, and yeah, it's it's real a real treat to just make some make some friends. And I don't know. That, that's been my favorite part so far. And, you know, obviously the racing is, is really fun too. And the, the camaraderie with the national team and the and the young boys is is a treat. But yeah, just taking that all that and then going out and just yeah meeting a bunch of fun new people that's that's been my favorite part so far. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting too when you take some place like Norway where it's so heavily ingrained in their culture. You know, you're in Oslo and you're hopping on the tram thing going out to Holmenkoll and and there's you know 200 school kids with skis getting ready to yeah. go out the skis. And you realize, you know, it's such a small sport here in the U.S., at least relatively speaking. Then you go other places right. and you see, you know, what a big part of their culture it is. And it's it's interesting to kind of see all that come together. Um, yeah. Right. And, so, well, that actually, that kind of leads to my next question. Um, speaking of Norway, why are those guys so freaking good? Like, it is really, I mean, it's sort of a two-part question. You can look at their impact. I mean, they're those they're like locusts. They're everywhere now. They, you know, they're in golf, they're in you know, they're yeah. in track and field, they're crushing it. But let's let's just talk about skiing for a second there. Why do you think they are just so good in everything? You know, biathlon, Nordic combined, yeah. cross country, across the board, men, women. Just, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty crazy and, and with cross country right now, it's a really it's like just unbelievable how good they are. And you know it's it's kind of the million dollar question. It gets talked about so much uh, every season, and I I don't have the I don't have the answer. You know I can I can speculate. You know I think I think that the power of the you know the power of momentum and the power of like a strong group of you know like people you know sets the expectation high. You know, like you got Claymo, right? He's the best in the world. If he's your teammate, that sets the expectation very high, right? And mm-hmm. I think up with that, I think that, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think that they, I will say that I think that their their dominance gets blown a little bit out of proportion by the absence of the Russians, certainly. Um, but that's a whole other can of worms that we don't necessarily need to get into. But I think that, yeah, I mean it's 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 honestly hard to say. They they do train, you know, they train well, but I don't think they train better than everybody else in the world. That would be kind of weird. <laughs> I, 
I, I, I really don't have much of an answer. I think it's it's a, it's a great question, though. And boy, if you figure it out, let me know. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think part of that goes back to what we just talked about. Uh, it's a numbers game to some degree. I mean, you look at the fact, what I go back to my earlier statement, which is what made me think of the question. Um, you know, you look at a major city where you've got, I don't know what percentage of school kids, but I don't know, 50, 60, 70, yeah. whatever the number is, hopping on the tram to go out and totally. ski. I mean, totally. that, yes. that's, that sure helps. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a numbers game, and I, and I think that Norway does have a small edge on the numbers. But you know, Norway is a tiny country, and sure, a, a huge percentage of them are getting on skis when they're young. But you know, the U.S. when you add up all the people in the Midwest, all the people in New England, all the people in Alaska, all the people in the West, I mean, we're picking from. We're not exactly picking from a tiny pool either. You know. Oh, great, and, great question. Do you do you have any data on this? I would I would love to hear more. Do you think that we have a similar sample size compared to, uh, well, let's say Norway, Sweden? What's your, I mean, I mean, I think we. I don't know. I really don't. I mean, it's just so much so speculative. But I just think that, like, if you think about how small Norway is, right? Mm-hmm. How few people there are there that, that live there total. I don't know. I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. youth ski league in total and the Norway youth ski league in total were, you know, similar in size, if not, you know, at least of the same like order of magnitude. You know, it's not like something. It's not like they're blowing us out of the water. Would be my guess. Although I really don't have any data on this. Um, but like you know, Nensa. I know Nensa has got. At least, I mean, Nensa gets, Nensa gets like pushing a thousand kids. No, 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 pushing 600, 700 kids showing up to the Bill Coke Youth Ski Festival every year, right? And that's mm-hmm. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, New York. You know, that's three small states. Alaska, I know, has a huge thing. I know that Minnesota, Wisconsin, they, they have a lot of, a lot of kids racing in high school, and I don't know. I just I feel like we can't 100% chalk it up to, to statistics. Although, I, I, uh, I will say when we're talking about statistics, in Norway, the very best athletes, I think, go the ski route. In the U.S., the very best athletes do not necessarily go the ski route. So that could be part of the, you know, that could be part of the thing, right? Like, how is, how is Norway able to track down it with a population size of what however many you know so small how are they able to track down like four guys with 90 plus vo2 maxes at the same time you know to and, race nordic and that that's really my point here i mean i i think the yeah. population of norway is like five and a half or six million or something like that yeah so i mean well again let's add it to the list of the things that we should be in charge of but i honestly this is something that the ski team should be looking at if they're not already, because um, I think it would give us a lot of insight. If, if nothing else, I'd be curious to see, you know, are we, where is our problem? Is it recruiting? Is it retention? Is it coaching? Are we getting enough kids in the pipeline? Are we getting right. them in and they're quitting? You know, is it's, know, it's, it's a great know, question. It, it's an interesting question. And I've always kind of dreamed of asking Claybo, and I, ne- I, I don't, think I ever will because I think it would be so weird, but I've always dreamed of asking him like, okay, 
you know, you're the undisputed best in the world, right? Potentially even the best to ever do it, you know? But do you think, does he think that would hold up if more countries around the world have the same relationship with crossing skiing as Norway does, right? And that, I think, there's basically two ways to approach that question. Number one is to say, hell no, because Norway is tiny and the best in Norway would not be the best in the world if more countries were, you know, putting up more, you know what I mean? We're, we're putting up more kid or young people and, and putting up their best athletes as crossing these years. No way Claybo would, would still be dominant. But the other, the flip side of it is to say, oh, well, look at running. Like running, sprinting, or even marathon running has, you know, a pretty gigantic draw around the world. I mean, almost every young kid will like run some one way or another. And if they possess talent, you know, they might pursue, they probably pursue it, right? But it's still the tiny countries that are dominating running, you know? So I don't know. That's, that's kind of a tricky question, but I'd be curious to hear what Claymore has to say. Well, maybe we'll get him on the podcast. We'll have to see. Yeah. But I do. <laughs> I, I think you make a really good point because it is without a doubt, um, I don't want to say self-selecting, but um, you're clearly getting a lot of good athletes in the pipeline when across the board you have, you know, guys uh, blowing 80, 85 VO2 maxes. Um, that says a lot right. about uh, your, uh, your talent pipeline. And it's funny because sure. one of the, uh, well, you know, Jim, uh, straight Gunderson, right? Straight cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he and I were talking one time, he's the, one of the physiologists on the U S ski team. Uh, for those mm-hmm. of you who don't know, and, um, he and I were talking one time about if there was, you know, a, a Lance Armstrong, uh, in India or China and, you know, I think the real the the answer is multifactorial. It's like, are there people to your point? Are there people out there in non ski countries, or for that matter, in Florida, Alabama, non ski right. states that have yeah. greater physiological potential than Claybo? Absolutely. So right. you know, are, if we were you know doing cheek smears and taking muscle biopsies of every you know newborn yeah. child like East Germany in the sixties. Um, if every country was doing that um, and then recognizing the you know genetic composition uh, that's been shown to lead to uh, optimal response to Nordic ski training and sending those you know youngsters places that have the pipeline and the history and the tradition and the coaching and the infrastructure, uh, whether it be Norway or any of the scandos or you know European countries that have traditionally been dominant, if we did that, would we have a better skier? I think we would, but obviously, you know. So there's a there's a lot of big assumptions in there, and probably a few right. moral issues. But again, I'm going to chalk yeah. this up to things that you and I should be in charge of. Certainly, are you, certainly. Are, are you are, are you writing these down? Yeah, uh, yeah, I got a list. Well, I got the voice memo. So, okay, good, uh, good, good. You just call back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll call uh, we'll call Tiger and tell him we got a plan for him afterward. Um, that was good. Who's who's the funniest person in the World Cup? You talked about all the teammates and the uh you know your uh competitors but they're also colleagues, you know, like out of all the friends you've made like who who's the most fun to hang out with when you're over there? Oh boy, that's a good question. There's a couple of people that come to mind certainly, but I will say I think 
one of the most like objectively funny people I've ever met uh, happens to be Zach Kellerson um, of good old fashioned Team USA because he. I don't know if you've spent much time with him, and you kind of have to get to know him for it to come out. But he is just absolutely hysterically funny, and it's in such a in such an interesting way. I don't know. He, he's not. He's never trying to be funny, you know, or he is, but you know, it's it's. I don't know. His sense of humor is just so good, and I find that yeah, like you know, to this day, right? Like talking, you're talking about Paul Goldberg being an adult with kids, like. The reason I don't feel like an adult is because when I'm in a meeting of any, absolutely any importance with Zach Kenderson, I like can't look at him or else in me and Luke, neither, neither can look at him in, in, without bursting into tears or bursting into uh, laughter. Like, you know, we're in freaking middle school again. So it's, <laughs> he's a pretty funny guy. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned LJ because, you know, Jaeger's my yeah. boy. Well, he's and, up there. Yeah. Sure. Oh, that Everything that comes out of that guy's mouth is funny. And yeah. uh, you two apparently are renowned for having conversations at the dinner table along the lines of, uh, you know, who would win in a fight between Superman and Godzilla? Yeah, <laughs> and, definitely. And I've heard that those discussions are often like the highlight of uh, the grind that is the World Cup. Um, would you say that's a fair assessment? Oh, certainly, certainly, and you got you know you got to do it. You got to get you got to get lost in a in a debate like that every once in a while because uh, keeps you you know keeps you grounded. <laughs> well, you know, and I agree, and it, it's funny to bring that up too. You know, as you probably know, I traveled on the World Cup for a little bit uh, a couple of years back, and one of the things that kind of struck me, and yeah, it's fun and it's glamorous, and there's a lot of excitement and you know, great people and great racing, but at the same time. I think people sometimes, you know, sort of going back to the earlier question about, you know, not recognize people think that, oh, if you're a movie star, you know, you got it made. I think sometimes people underestimate the grind of the World Cup. I mean, you know, you guys leave in November and come back in April or May. Um, you know, you can't go home on the weekend, um, see your dog, see your girlfriend. It, it, it without a doubt can be a grind. What would yeah. you say, what's the worst part about being in the World Cup that maybe the average listener out there wouldn't think or wouldn't necessarily realize um, gets to be uh, difficult after doing it for four months or even, you know, more to the point, 10 years? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, I can't quite speak for the 10 years one yet, but I will say that there's something that instantly comes to mind. And, and of course, there's you know, the, the missing, the people at home and that sort of stuff. But what really starts to get me, if you, if you believe it after the full World Cup season is the fact that like, anytime you need anything from your bag, you have to, you have to, we, I, we call it rummaging. You have to go rummaging, you know, mm -hmm. and it's so unbelievably annoying to like, after and it's, it's, it feels, it sounds, I know it's going to sound like such a non thing, but, Going, if you need a pair of clean socks, having to rifle through your, your bag with all your possessions. And then, of course, you know, you get it all tidy in there, right? We've all had this experience. You fold everything, you get it all nice, and then you're frantic and you need to find your shirt pants or whatever. You need to find your boot covers and you don't know where they are and you just completely destroy the inside of it. And then it's just a complete mess. And then from henceforth, you're back to rummaging. And 
Oh, it gets unbelievably old. It's just, it's so funny. And, and, you know, you can unpack everything at every World Cup and put it, you know, put it out or whatever, but there's never dressers. So you're always like, you know, lining the walls with your shirts and socks and stuff. And so that doesn't really work. So you really just leave it in the bag. And then when you need something, you have to rummage for it. And it's, it's so insanely infuriating because you'll be looking for something. And we all know this. You'll be looking for something, can't find it for five minutes, you know? And maybe you give up and then go without it. And then the next time you're rummaging, you're looking for something else, instantly find the thing you were looking for two days ago. I mean, it's just, and it's not even, I know it's inside my head, but it is just so annoying. So, yeah, the the rummaging gets you, you know, and, and it sounds silly, but go live out of a bag for, uh, for a few months and tell me that you are sick of rummaging. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I know it. it it's it, it wears on you for sure. Um, yeah. Why do you think the U.S. women have had a fair amount more success lately than uh, the U.S. men? Yeah, good question. Good question. Another uh, another tricky one. But you know, I think the best I can the best I can chalk it up to is just they they had that momentum and they had that they have that like team that team cohesion and, and you know Jesse came through years and years ago and started like setting new standard for for u.s women and and then that's the new standard right and then girls who are up and coming novi mccabe sophia whoever it may be you know to get on the world cup there's there's a standard you know and and that's set by jesse and rosie and you know i don't know i think that they aspire to that standard and and success breeds success kind of deal and and uh you know i think that's that's part of it. Certainly, they've also just had a lot of you know talent um, come up through. But I think that yeah, that momentum thing and that success thing is is definitely a big part of it. Um, it seems yeah, it seems to me like yeah, that's important. Mm-hmm. And one more question, if I may, because and I really appreciate your time here. You had just an absolutely unbelievable year last year. Like I said earlier, you know, you raced great amazing finish overall um just list after list list of accomplishment so in a way that's a nice problem to have but also it'd be easy to turn that around and put on put maybe a little bit of undue pressure on yourself you're a pretty level-headed guy so i'm curious what are your goals for next year in particular given the fact that you had such an incredible year last year yeah, it's a good question, and uh, you know, I, I, I was, I've been a little bit worried about like you know this sort of like success and then expectation aspect of of racing, but you know, I yeah, I feel like I'm just approaching this season the same way I've approached every season, where I've yeah laid out goals for myself, and those goals are, you know, if as far as like results goals, it, it may be to get in the final, you know, that's getting the world cup final, getting a handful of world cup finals is a, is a huge goal of mine, you know, start to be that guy in the sprints and, uh, you know, and then, but then they're also paired with, you know, the process goals, like, you know, where you're, I mean, I mean constant pursuit of like finding a feeling very comfortable with the, with the, the regiment, you know, the, the travel, the being away from home, living out of a bag, right? Like you got to figure out how to be at peace with that and, and 
because you know the second you get over to Europe, you're starting to like miss home or want to not be there, and then you're not going to race well, you know. So, and I don't struggle with that too much, but I think it's something you always have to be you always have to be working on. So, you know, there's there's that type of goal, and then yeah. So I don't know. I just I would say that I'm I'm approaching this season same as I approach to every other, but with yeah, like a little bit more confidence and and a little bit more uh, a little bit more patience too, because you know the nice thing about last season is that you know it was a great season and i'm really proud of what i did especially in distance racing but i didn't i didn't race my distance racing was not great early on you know i had i had a hard couple period one on the distance circuit but it came you know it came later in the season like it often did back in the college days for me you know i always started out you know sort of racing the season a little bit and like you know now staring down the barrel of ruka in two weeks and you know i'm feeling like if it if it goes great, uh, then great. And if it doesn't go great, then you know it's a long season. And there's capacity for that to change because it has changed for me before. So I, I'm I'm happy with how how that feels. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> we were mentioning the you know the trajectory of uh, Ghostface Skier earlier and how right. um, good an example, a great an example, it is for really anyone at whether it's, you know, skiing, uh, bike racing, you know, your career, just perseverance hanging in there. So it's been equally exciting to see your trajectory as well, because, um, you know, it's always great to see uh, good things happen to good people. That's not always the case. And so to see you, you know, have a breakthrough year like that and, you know, keep such uh, good focus, like we talked about, you know, through some challenging times and just going into the season, you know, with the, um, I think the, the confidence and the perspective of, um, really having accomplished a lot. I, I think it's, it's great to see. And I see lots of great things in your future. So, you know, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Like you said, be patient, but I think it's going to be really, really exciting. And it's funny, a couple of years ago, God, maybe three or four I was up in Bozeman. I guess I skied with Newell at Bridger or something. We were driving back because it was a little bit of a drive. And I remember him saying, he's like, FBD, we got a couple studs in the pipeline. And he was referring to you know you and Jaeger and, you know, uh, Johnny and, uh, you know, the, your your whole the, the whole crew that you mentioned earlier. So it's been awesome. First of all, good on Newell for picking that, you know, back before yeah. anyone said anything. Um, and right. good on you guys for actually doing it. You know, it's one thing to have potential. It's another thing to actually uh, capitalize on it or leverage it. So it's, it's been, you know, it's been awesome uh, to be a part of it and to watch. So uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Um, obviously, yeah. you know, we're uh, stoked to see, you know, the campaign and, uh, you know, we'll see you out there. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, cheers. Let's do it again sometime. All right. Well, maybe uh, maybe the next one will be maybe the next one will be from Europe. We'll have to see. We'll do do yeah. an on the spot live report. Sounds good. All right, Ben. You're the man. Have a good one out there. Yep. Absolutely. All right. oh, what time is it? Who woke me up?